All right, our reading for today is the 22nd chapter of Matthew. This is an entertaining chapter. It feels like he just spends the whole chapter making the Pharisees and the Sadducees feel really stupid. <laughs> uh, he tells another parable, angering the Jewish leaders who then make every attempt, unsuccessfully I might add, to trap Jesus in his words. And um, so let's, let's see what we find here. I, there's a lot here, so take your time. Hopefully, if you've already read it, and just try to stick with me to the end, because there is a lot to think about here in, in this chapter. It's a great chapter. The first thing I want to point out is uh, the blindness of sin and the grace of God. The blindness of sin and the grace of God. Jesus continues his discussion with the chief priests and elders from the last chapter in chapter 21. And in, remember, in the previous chapter, Jesus had begun telling them a series of kind of scathing parables and here in this chapter he continues with one more the the parable in matthew 22 here verses 1 to 14 tells the story of a king giving a wedding feast for his son verse 2 as the story goes the servants were sent out to call those who were invited to come those who would be most expected to come but who instead reject the offer and do not come as expected verses 3 to 6 in the end, the servants went out again and called many others who came, and the wedding hall was filled with guests, verse 10. One thing I would point out quickly at this point in the parable is the blindness of sin. Sin blinds us to reality. Here we have a king inviting and calling guests for his royal son's wedding party, and those who would have been the most natural attendees refused to come. Now, Jesus has already said that he is comparing this parable to what the kingdom of heaven is really like. He says that in verse 2. From that perspective, it's pretty clear that these invited guests who refuse to come are the Jewish rulers and teachers. They, of all people, should have recognized the king's son, Jesus, when he came uh, and should have welcomed him and accepted him. They had been given every resource to recognize him when he came. Just read the first few verses of Romans chapter 9 where Paul mentions all the advantages the Jews had to recognize the Messiah when he came, and they still didn't. When he came, they rejected him. And in the parable, what are the reasons Jesus gives for those who refuse to come to the wedding party? Well, he says in verse 5, Jesus said the first invited guest paid no attention, and one cared, cared more about his farm and the other his business. Now, a person's farm or business is not completely un unimportant for our daily sustenance. Um, but to care more about that than our eternal security and salvation is absurd. Jesus wisely said, quote, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the daily needs will be taken care of by the providential hand of the Lord back in Matthew 6. Don't be blinded by the cares and distractions of the world that only matter for a few years and completely miss that which will matter for all eternity. Yet, this is a, another parable reminding us, just as those in the last chapter did, that Jesus and his kingdom are always more important. Take Jesus seriously. These men had an opportunity to come to the feast, and they refused. And in this parable, they never received another chance. God, in his providence and grace, has, has you reading his word right now and, and maybe listening to what I'm saying right now. Don't be like those who paid no attention to it to their own eternal shame and parable, as we see in verse 5. The other thing I want to note quickly about this parable is the grace of God. 
the parable intentionally explains that after the initial group of invited guests rejected their invitation, the king invited other guests, making sure to note that those invited, as in verse 10, were both good and bad, or both bad and good. The Lord didn't only invite those who were already worthy. That's the point. In fact, none of them were worthy. We know this because in the parable it appears that the king had given all those who accepted his invitation the necessary garments to wear the feet to the feast. We know this because in verses 11 to 13 we read of one guest who refused to wear the garments provided and, and was cast out. What's the point of this? I believe it emphasizes that if we want to come to the Lord, we come only in the way that he has provided. And the way that he has provided for us is through the righteousness of Jesus. In the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, I don't know when the last time you've read Zechariah is, but it might be worth pausing this and go read uh, Zechariah, especially Zechariah chapter 3. Because in Zechariah 3, we read a vision, a vision in which Joshua the high priest was standing in the presence of the Lord and Satan was also there accusing him. That's Zechariah 3 verse 1. And we're also told that as Joshua was standing there in the presence of the Lord being accused by Satan, it says in verse 3 that he was clothed with filthy garments. That, I mean, so imagine... Imagine that vision, Joshua the high priest standing in the presence of holy God, clothed in filthy garments and being accused by Satan over and over again. But what happens next in Zechariah 3? Joshua is given new clothes to wear. Verses 4 and 5 says they were pure and clean. In the same way as Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 and the wedding guests here in Matthew 22, the way to come to the Lord is to recognize our own sin and our own filth and long for the clean righteousness that we can have through faith in Jesus. It's like being clothed in his righteousness just as the wedding guests were given garments to wear and just as Joshua, the priest, was clothed with pure and clean garments before the Lord. And finally, Jesus ends this parable saying, for many are called, but few are chosen, verse 14. When we all get to heaven, what we will realize is that it was God's grace from all eternity. That's Ephesians chapter 1 all over it. Okay, the second thing I want to uh, get to here, and it's the most entertaining part of the chapter, is uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The latter half of this chapter is filled with one group after another coming to trick Jesus or trap him in his words. And two words come to my mind, epic failure. Uh, <laughs> epic failure. Um, first up to the plate were the Pharisees, uh, seeking to entangle Jesus, according to verse 15. Notice how they come to Jesus with flattering words in, in verse 16, even though verse 18 says there was malice in their hearts. They asked Jesus whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar, verse 17. Uh, would seemingly be a simple yes or no question, right? If Jesus and, it, and, if, and if it is that, then they've got Jesus either way he goes. Because if Jesus said yes, pay taxes to Caesar, uh, if he just said yes, the Jewish rulers would hate him because they hated the Romans who were ruling over them and who levied the taxes. If Jesus said no, then he would be in trouble with the Roman authorities who levied the taxes. 
they saw, hey, if we ask this question, there's no way out for Jesus. But Jesus famously answered, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's verse 21. Their response, it says, they marveled <laughs> and they went away. Okay, so up next to the plate were the Sadducees. They were another group in the Jewish ruling class, and they were more sort of upper class than the Pharisees. Uh, verse 23 says they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't even uh, use the whole Old Testament for their doctrines, but only mainly the, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. So with their doubting of the resurrection, they come and ask Jesus some kind of foolish questions about whose wife a certain woman would be in the resurrection who had been married to seven different men in her earthly life, verses 24 through 28. Well, Jesus tells them they don't even know their own Bibles, not even the tiny portion that they focus on. Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven, and if they were familiar with the first five books of the Bible, they should believe in the resurrection after death. Jesus quotes Exodus 3, 6, where God tells Moses at the burning bush that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom were physically dead by the time of Moses, who was standing before the burning bush. And Jesus points out that God did not tell Moses, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but rather, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, proving that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive and well in the afterlife, and thus there is a resurrection. Well, the Pharisees had been licking their wounds from the first humiliation at the hands of Jesus, and so when they saw that the Pharisees got embarrassed, verse 34, they decided to give it another shot. <laughs> so, uh, like conniving people often do, they didn't go themselves, but sent someone else, verse 35. So they sent an, a quote-unquote expert in the Old Testament law, um, and he asked Jesus to name the most important commandment, verse 36. That's when he asked that. What is the most important commandment? Okay, it's not an honest question. In the lawyer's mind, if Jesus named a particular commandment, he could use that to pit him against the other teachers and rulers. Jesus knew, knew that, and so he answered by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Le Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. In doing this, he covered all of the law of God. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind fulfills the first four of the Ten Commandments, and loving your neighbor as yourself fulfills the other six. And before they had a chance to tuck their tails and leave again, Jesus put a riddle to the Pharisees. They knew that the Messiah, whom, whoever they thought he would be, would definitely be a son of David, a descendant of David. It says that in verses 42 and 43. So Jesus then quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, written by David himself, where David calls the Messiah Lord. And Jesus asked the, the Pharisees how David could call one of his own sons, one of his own descendants, Lord. The Pharisees didn't want to accept and believe that the Messiah was God's own son. Thus, they didn't know how to answer his question, according to verse 46. And so they decided not to ask him any more trick questions. <laughs> Good decision. Bottom line, the foolishness of God 
is wiser than the greatest wisdom of man. 1 Corinthians 1.25. You can never go wrong if you simply take God at his word. You may not always understand it immediately, but you can always trust it. And that's a good word from Matthew 22.